Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship. I'm joined today by Brandon Massey. Hi, Ian. Uh, Brandon, who are you? I'm a PhD student at the Center for the Social Scientific Study of the Bible at St. Mary's University in Twickenham in the UK, writing my PhD uh, on the history of the pre-Mark and Passion narrative in 20th century New Testament scholarship. Phenomenal. Brandon and I got in a conversation on Twitter, actually, about the form critics as I was reading Carl Ludwig Schmidt for my dissertation research, and I thought, wow, this is a work that has never been translated into English that Brandon knows a lot about. It would be great to do a New Testament review episode on it. So this will be our first New Testament review episode on a work that has no English translation. That is, Der Rahmen der Geschichte Jesu, the framework of the story of Jesus. Brandon, what is this book about? In this book, Schmidt looks at the framework of the narrative in the Gospel of Mark, and he argues that this framework, the chronological framework, did not provide a historical outline for a reconstruction of the life of Jesus. So instead, what he argues is that the Gospel is is compiled out of separate traditions. It's important that Mark was not an author, but a compiler of individual units of traditions that were translated orally in the church before he wrote them down. And their arrangement in the Gospel of Mark is totally the work of the evangelist, and he was not concerned with chronology or even topography, but he grouped them topically, or he placed certain portions of them in particular places within Jesus' ministry, and thus the main work of the writer of the Gospel of Mark was the creation of different summary statements that he used to connect these seemingly disparate uh, units of tradition. Schmidt is going to be arguing that the framework and the settings of the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of Mark, are not historical. Although that's what he's arguing, the actual impact of this book has a lot more to do with scholars' assumptions about the nature of oral tradition. That is, Jesus dies on some Thursday in 33 AD, and 70 AD, on a Tuesday no doubt, Mark writes his Gospel. How do stories get between those two dates? But we should back up here a little bit. Brandon, who was Carl Ludwig Schmidt? Carl uh, Schmidt is a New Testament German New Testament scholar. Uh, he is one of the founding members of Form Criticism with his 1919 publication here. He studied under Adolf Deismann at Berlin, uh, and this volume is dedicated to Deismann. He fought in World War I um, and was actually suffered a head injury, but after he returned, he continued uh, working on this work and published it in 1919. He was a professor at multiple universities in Germany, and he was a very vocal opponent to National Socialism, which actually led to banishment from his post, and then he spent the rest of his career in uh, Switzerland as a professor of New Testament. He has several other major works, including one that has been translated into English, The Place of the Gospels in the General History of Literature. And he also has an influential encyclopedia article, Jesus uh, Christ, in RGG2, or The Religion in Geschichte in Gegenwart, uh, Volume 2. His study under Deismann may actually be relevant for the topic of our discussion today. And we have already recorded, and hopefully by the time this is published, released, an episode on Adolf Deismann's Light from the Ancient Near East. So you can probably go find that in our backlog, um, recorded with Chance Bonar. So Brandon, you classified Schmidt as a form critic. 
Yes. Um, I think this is true and not true in interesting senses, and I'd like to just talk about that really quickly. Form criticism is a study that developed for the study of Genesis and the Psalms uh, by a guy named Gunkel, and it is primarily concerned with reconstructing a form in which a oral tradition was first formulated and then transmitted. And so it's particularly concerned with reconstructing what they call the Sitzimleben, the place in life in which a story was first formulated orally, and then how that was transmitted in the liturgical life of a religious community. So a particular narrative about Moses was developed for this purpose in this context, and then changed over time because of these factors. Boltman and DeBelius are famous for applying this method to the New Testament, to reconstruct why and how certain oral traditions about Jesus were first, you know, put together. Um, DeBelius says, you know, certain kinds of stories were made in sermons and other kinds of stories were made for catechesis. Um, and then developing, Boltman in particular go, is, pays a lot of attention to developing how those things changed over time. Schmidt doesn't really do any of that. Schmidt doesn't really reconstruct any Sitzimleben and doesn't really construct reconstruct much of a transmission history. So my question is, in what sense would you say Schmidt is a form critic? Yeah, I think that's some, a really uh, interesting observation and correct is that he's very different than the work of Boltmann or Debelius or even later form critics. I think we need to recognize that Schmidt, his work is a fills a very important place here in the transition between the his earlier uh, scholars from the history of religion school and others, such as uh, Vreda, Velhausen, Weiss, uh, Gunkel, and others, to the work that Boltmann and Debelius were able to do by going behind. And this, the argument that he lays forth here shows that the Gospels are individual units in oral tradition, which is one of the fundamental premises that Boltmann and Debelius worked with. So Schmidt here is kind of a bridge scholar between the older generation and the newer generation of Boltmann, Debelius, and others. And his work kind of synthesizes and summarizes a lot of things that were happening before, but he goes through and demonstrates that pretty thoroughly, some of their previous assumptions. And then Boltmann in particular, uh, and, and also Debelius in some of his later work, acknowledges that Schmidt's work uh, that we're going to discuss here really was one of the fundamental things. It was the foundation of a lot of later form criticism. Right. I argue very briefly in my dissertation, and this isn't a particularly controversial or novel contribution, that the form critical approach to the Gospels is premised on the view of the Gospels that Schmidt articulates. That is, you can't do form criticism with the Gospels unless you accept Schmidt's conclusion. Debelius and Boltman, as we'll talk about, didn't have Schmidt in front of them. They had the, the sorts of views that Schmidt was articulating, um, just was sort of in the water, inherited from other schools we're going to talk about in a second. But I'm not sure how helpful it is to talk about Schmidt as a form critic or not, or what's at stake in even like arguing over that. But I think it's important to articulate that the form critical method of study is premised on Schmidt's conclusions, not that Schmidt actually is engaged in reconstructing forms. Yeah, I think that's a helpful distinction, I, and I do think that you're correct. So, let's contextualize Schmidt a little bit. A lot of his ideas aren't entirely brand new. Brandon, why should we care about Julius Wellhausen? Julius Wellhausen wrote commentaries on all four, all four Gospels. He also wrote an introduction to the Gospels, none of which has ever been translated into English. 
but he argued that the author of the Gospel of Mark put together the units of tradition, quote, loosely and without art. So Mark was not a narrative of the life of Jesus. Rather, it was a collection of loose traditions, of uh, disparate narratives, and isolated sayings. So the evangelist was just a redactor. He wrote down these popular traditions as he received them, and the structure of the Gospel of Mark, according to Wellhausen, was arranged in three distinct periods within the life of Jesus. First being his ministry in Capernaum. The second is the wandering the territory of Philip and the region of the Decapolis, and then his final days near Jerusalem. In relation to Schmidt, Wellhausen emphasized the Mark and introductions and summaries, um, and in a way, a lot of what Wellhausen was emphasizing kind of foreshadowed a lot of the things that Schmidt goes on to say in this work. Right. Wellhausen was, began his career as a scholar of the Hebrew Bible and is also part of the story of bridging form-critical approaches and the sort of approaches to oral tradition that are used to study the Hebrew Bible and applying those to the New Testament. After talking with Brandon the other day, I actually started reading a big chunk of Wellhausen's Anleitung. I think Wellhausen actually has a higher view of the evangelist's authorial creativity than Schmidt does, especially a higher view than Schmidt articulates in his later work, the story of the um, the, the place of the Gospels. Yeah, absolutely. Schmidt uh, criticizes various views of Wellhausen throughout, and one of them is that he argued that Wellhausen put too much weight on the some of the historical nature of some of the traditions in the gospel and the framework of the gospel. Right. One of the inconsistencies within Schmidt's work is how much creativity he's willing to attribute to the evangelists. It, sort, it seems to shift depending on where we are. Another important figure for understanding Schmidt is Johannes Weiss. This is your wheelhouse, Brandon, so why should we care about uh, Weiss? Yeah, we should care about Weiss because he wrote uh, an influential commentary on the Gospel of Mark where he argued, very similarly to Wellhausen, that the Gospel of Mark was an attempt to place these loose traditions into a framework. And what he said, uh, I think it's worth quoting here, is that there's no chronological interest at all in the framework of the Gospel. Here's a quote from his work, not from his commentary, but from his work on earliest Christianity. He wrote, The whole thing is composed of completely separate fragments, which are grouped partly according to practical didactic viewpoints, partly almost according to chance, so that they can be changed in order without serious damage. And so that idea is one that is also very important to Schmidt, as we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. And so he, like Wellhausen, taught of a kind of didactic structure of the Gospel of Mark, where for Vice, the period of Jesus in Galilee taught us of Jesus' life, the period in Jerusalem about his death, The Nazareth period revealed Israel's rejection, and Golgotha represented the later persecution of the church. And this is really important because for Weiss, the gospel was missionary literature, and it was used to teach people who already knew about Jesus. So chronology is much less important than teaching these different lessons about Jesus and applying them to their situation currently in the church. Schmidt is going to argue the case differently, but Weiss, in that statement, more or less states the conclusion that Schmidt is trying to reach. Schmidt is principally concerned to demonstrate the historical unreliability of chronological, topographical contexts and sequence. 
Yeah, and I think it's important to note him here in reference to both Wellhausen and Weiss because he believed they, they both of them overstated the historical value of different parts of the gospel. But I think it's important to remember as well, and, and we can talk about this in a bit, is that he didn't reject everything as unhistorical, just the connecting, the framework of the different things. So the introduction to different sections and the conclusions, the summary statements, some of the topography and place names, but not he didn't reject everything in whole. We'll get to our frustrations with this book, uh, and they are legion, in a bit. But first we should ask the question, why does Schmidt think this about the Gospels? What kinds of arguments does he make to justify this claim that sequence and setting, and especially these summary statements and transition statements, are ahistorical? Schmidt doesn't really lay out a very logical syllogism for his views on this. What he does is he takes a particular understanding of oral tradition, and he applies it to the Gospel of Mark. And so what he believed is that the oldest tradition, the oral tradition, was what he termed pericope tradition. And as we've already said, it circulated with no context as individual scenes and stories. But these individual units of tradition were passed on in groups of storytellers who would obviously tell these Jesus traditions orally, and they would come together and one after another, they would pick up with one end, and the tradition in this way slowly, kind of through chance, became ordered. And so the way they would introduce a new story was with an, an introductory chi, the conjunction and. And so that's retained a lot at the beginning of the stories in the Gospel of Mark, which Schmidt viewed as like the residue of oral tradition. And he did believe that there were some introductions, what he called like almost traveling introductions. They would go with some of these stories, and they did contain some chronology, some topography that were retained that show up back into the Gospels. Right, so Schmidt doesn't really lay out an argument for this view of oral tradition. He more or less assumes this view of oral tradition and exposits the Gospel in light of that presupposition. That said, of course, as he's doing this, he does point to features in the Gospel and say, look, this is evidence for my view. And so we're going to sort of treat that as if that is an argument rather than rather than simply interpretation in light of his view. One of those features of the Gospels that he says is explained by his assumptions about the character of oral tradition is the lack of interrelation between stories. You don't see development from story to story. You don't see callbacks very often in one story to the previous story. These sort of independent, discrete units, narrative units. Um, and he says that is the sort of thing you'd expect to see in a collection of separate stories. If you view the gospel as sort of a structureless anthology, you wouldn't expect to see development, progression, or interconnection between stories. And Brandon just alluded to another one that I think is really important, which is that lots of these traveling introductions and these the sort of transitions between stories or introductions to stories or these settings for stories are really abstract. They're not very specific. So, for instance, Mark frequently begins stories with the phrase Kai Agenita, which literally means, and it happened. And for Schmidt, this is something akin to the English once upon a time. When you're sitting around telling stories around a fireplace, it is con you would start the story once upon a time, and in doing that, you are not linking it up with the previous story. This is a sort of idiomatic introduction to a new story. Um, so in Mark 1.9, and it happened in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. 2.15, and it happened, he was reclining. 
223, and it happened that he was passing. You can just work through the gospel, and over and over, stories start with Kai Agenata. Right, and I think it's important, too, even with the Kai Agenata, to note that Schmidt finds it in the gospel even when it's not in the written text, such as Mark 1, 4, where he introduces John the Baptist following the quote from Isaiah. He argues that the Kai is omitted there, and Schmidt argues that it was originally present in oral tradition, but the evangelist chose not to write it down because it didn't form a smooth enough transition between the Old Testament quote and the introduction of John. Right, there we get the sort of Schmidt's not so much arguing, but assuming. Another example of the sort of textual phenomena that suggests to Schmidt discrete narrative units that were transmitted by storytellers and then later gathered up is the sort of abstractness of lots of temporal and topographical settings. So frequently in Mark, there is suddenly a mountain. You know, there may be a story in the previous sentence of them in a village, and then all of a sudden they are on a mountain in Mark 3.13. Similarly, one of the common chronological markers in the Gospel of Mark is the phrase, in those days. And again, that's kind of like the once upon a time. In those days just means back in ye old times, right? Yes, back when we were by the sea or next to a mountain. And a particularly strong case of his that I I find compelling and some of his other critics do as well are the chains of Jesus teaching in Mark 4 that begin with more or less and he said or some variation on that. In Mark 4 we have a series of Jesus' teachings that are just introduced with and he said or Jesus said or Jesus taught or something like that. Whether or not you agree with Schmidt's view on the nature of all tradition and this is that this is best explained as a artifact of independent storytellers, it would be rather silly to view Mark 4 as the narration of a single day, as if Jesus gave all of this kind of teaching in one day and didn't, you know, use these sorts of teachings throughout the rest of his ministry. Most people agree that Mark 4 is indeed a collection of Jesus' teachings brought together without particular attention to context or sequence. Right. Interestingly, you can look at Mark 4 and see a way that Schmidt might have grouped some of these individual traditions together based on details he found. For instance, in verse in 4.1, uh, it talks about Jesus being by the sea and into a boat. And if you look at the end of Mark, it talks about in Mark, in Mark 4.35, when Jesus and his disciples get into the boat. So I think Schmidt kind of makes the argument like, oh, here's a story about a boat that's got a boat with it, and they're by the sea, and here's another story. And then he kind of groups all of them together. Right, he links teachings of Jesus by little catchwords rather than any attention to historical sequence or even narrative sequence. Another type of argument that Schmidt uses throughout this is pointing out the difference in the settings of particular units of tradition among the synoptics, which is really important for him because this proves that these traditions did circulate individually and without context because the gospel authors felt totally comfortable moving them around and changing their order without doing any damage or harm to the to the story or to the context of the story. An example here is the difference between uh, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew on the triumphal entry, uh, the cleansing of the temple, and the cursing of the fig tree. And if you note, know, we look there in Mark, the order is that Jesus uh, enters into Jerusalem, but then retires to Bethany for the evening. The next morning, he curses the fig tree, um, and cleanses the temple, and then returns to Bethany for the evening. And the withering of the fig tree and the disciples' question about the fig tree shows up the next morning. And when we look to the Gospel of Matthew, we see that there's a, a different 
order of these events. So Jesus enters Jerusalem and then cleanses the temple on the same day, but returns to Bethany that evening. Um, the next day curses the fig tree. And then immediately after in the scene, it says, you know, that at that time, the disciples asked him their question and Jesus talked about uh, the withering of the fig tree immediately after. And these changes here in orders, even within, you know, kind of complexes, prove to Schmidt that, uh, again, that these tr these units of tradition were circulated independently and they were basically movable and could be rearranged without any damage to their meaning or to the context of the story. I don't understand why, for Schmidt, this would be evidence in favor of his case, because we know, and Schmidt believes, that Matthew is using Mark as a literary source, not drawing independently on this oral tradition. Nevertheless, this is the argument he makes, and I think the way he would want to phrase it rhetorically is, this shows that the evangelists weren't interested in the setting, sequence, and chronology of these events, even if in this particular case he's not drawing on a new oral tradition, He's getting them from Mark. It shows what sort of things the evangelists cared about. I'll, also, I, I just love this as a fun case of of redaction. I mean, this is a Mark and Sandwich, right? Where you have cursing fig tree, temple tantrum, sh then view that the fig tree is destroyed. Whereas Matthew explicitly says that the fig tree withers immediately and the disciples ask immediately. Another interesting case of this sort of moving pericope is the feeding of the 5,000, as discussed in Mark Goodacre's amazing article, Fatigue in the Synoptics, where the feeding of the 5,000 is in the desert in Mark, and the disciples say, we're in a deserted place, should we go to the surrounding villages to get food? Luke relocates the story on his big road trip to Jerusalem, and plants it in the middle of Bethsaida, apparently a major fishing village, yet preserves Mark's statement um, we're in a deserted place, should we go to the surrounding villages? So we have here the sort of thing that Schmidt is arguing Mark does with oral tradition shows up in Luke's redaction of Mark. That is, a pericope is moved to a new setting, but something preserved in the substance of the story creates inconsistency with the new contextual setting. My pushback will just be that because we see Luke doing this with Mark on a literary level, there's no justification for reconstructing a particular mode of oral tradition. But we'll, we'll get back to that. But that raises another class of arguments, which is inconsistencies between the setting and the story. And my favorite example of this is in Mark chapter 6. Jesus and the disciples get into the boat, and it says they're headed to Bethsaida, but they arrive in verse 53 in Capernaum. So we have a disconnect between the content of the story in Capernaum and the transition or introduction, which is that they're headed to Bethsaida. Another is in Mark chapter 1 with John the Baptist uh, being in the desert and at the Jordan, which we know um, the Jordan does not actually uh, go into the desert. And so the here is an absurdity on the location of, of John the Baptist that was present in the tradition that remained in the writing of the gospel. One last piece of evidence that actually has an interesting reception history that we, I think, discussed in our Percival Gardner-Smith episode is the setting of the temple tantrum in John versus the Synoptics. John puts it at the beginning of his gospel, and the Synoptics put Jesus in the temple at the very end of their gospel. And Schmidt thinks this is only possible if the story about Jesus going and you know flipping tables in the temple was circulating without any sort of setting or context. It is unimaginable to Schmidt, as to Percy Gardner-Smith, that John could have known the synoptics and chosen to put this in a different location. 
instead this shows that in the oral tradition that reached John and the Synoptics independently, stories like Jesus in the temple had no placement in the sequence of Jesus's life relative to other stories. Not to belabor the point, but Schmidt really believed that most traditions were not fixed to any time and location within Jesus's ministry. And here the difference between John and the synoptics on the temple showed to him once again that things could be moved backwards or forwards or placed in a different context without really doing any harm to the tradition. However, there is one part of the tradition in the Gospel of Mark that for Schmidt uh, was unique and exempt from this, and that is the passion narrative. And Schmidt's articulation of the uniqueness of the passion narrative within the Jesus tradition as a the only coherent narrative within the tradition became one of the assured results of form criticism throughout the 20th century. And scholars today even argue similarly that the passion narrative is unique among Jesus traditions. Right, this is a really influential idea. It even survived the death in many ways of form criticism. Commentators like Joel Marcus and Adele Yerbor Collins writing on the Gospel of Mark still assume that the passion narrative had some existence as a narrative with sequence before the composition of the Gospel of Mark. But the idea for Schmidt is that everything before Mark 14-ish borders very a little bit. That's not super important for our point today. Um, everything before a certain point was circulated as independent, discrete oral traditions that got jumbled and then collected, whereas everything after this, Jesus's, you know, last week, death and resurrection, formed a coherent narrative that involves, you know, chronological progression and callbacks and things like that. Yeah, and I think it's important here to quote Smith because this idea has literally been repeated dozens, if not hundreds of times throughout New Testament scholarship. Regarding the Passion narrative, Schmidt wrote, The Passion narrative requires a different literary appraisal. It is the only portion of the Gospels that gives topographical and chronological detail, even to the day and hour. It is readily apparent that in this instance, a consecutive narrative was in mind from the outset. And he goes on to explain how these uh, there's a narrative progression. One thing's Things build one on the other. So there's the preparation for the Last Supper. There's the Last Supper. There's Gethsemane. And then they go to um, into the garden. And then there's the arrest. And so on and so forth. So what these events naturally build on one another. So all the features that Schmidt says are absent in the rest of the gospel and therefore justify his view of the oral tradition are present post Mark 14 or so. Correct. And so this goes not only with the chronology and things being linked together, it goes on to specific details of the setting of the story as well. So in Mark 14, 1, we get the identification of it was two days before Passover. Later, it was Mark 14, 12, the first day of unleavened bread. And then even in the crucifixion scene, we get details even to the hour where it was, you know, nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified Jesus. And then we get darkness at noon until three o'clock. And then at three o'clock, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and dies. And then later, even concerning the burial of Jesus, we get in Mark 15, 42, the um, chronological marker of evening had come, that it was the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. And so for Schmidt, these details are very, very different than what he sees in the previous 13 chapters of Mark. This view is really important for people who think the synoptics and John are independent, that John does not know the synoptics. Because there is so much overlap 
and shared sequence and events between the synoptics and John here. The idea of a proto-gospel or an ur-narrative for the passion allows them to explain away or ignore this class of agreements between John and the synoptics. And if you want more on that, go listen to episode 33 on Percival Gardner-Smith. Yeah, and another thing with the pre-Mark and Passion narrative, I think it's interesting to point out in with regard to Schmidt, because I can't emphasize this enough. This the idea that there was the existence of a pre-Mark and Passion narrative became one of the 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 assured results of form criticism. And it's interesting the way this idea develops in Schmidt's work, because here it's the unique piece of tradition. And in his later work on the place of the gospels in the general history of literature, it's the only piece of tradition, the only parts of the Gospels that for him even approximates literature proper. So it not only has this unique, coherent narrative aspect to it, it's also for Schmidt, the only piece of Jesus tradition that could be considered literature or high literature. So in sum, Jesus traditions circulated individually in the oral tradition without sequence or setting. And therefore, they could not have moved from the Thursday in 33 AD to the Tuesday in 70 when Mark writes his gospel. And therefore, according to Schmidt, cannot be used to reconstruct the life of the historical Jesus. For Schmidt, the only work of the evangelist was the creation of summary statements that were used to connect these individual units of tradition together. And so you get an example of this in Mark 1, 14 through 15, he said, uh, Mark wrote, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. Yes, yeah, so in this example of a summary statement, um, we get a summary of Jesus' ministry um, that he came proclaiming the good news and preaching. And so this is a theme that is kind of throughout all of these summary statements is just a brief summary of what Jesus did or he was preaching or later statements say that he casted out demons or that he healed people were sick. So this allows the evangelist to take these brief individual scenes and sayings and to put them into some kind of a narrative. So I would push back a little bit on the use of the word narrative there because Schmidt, I admit, is a little bit equivocal on exactly what the evangelists are accomplishing in arranging their gospel or in collecting the stories to create a gospel. He probably does think that Luke composes a narrative, but he wants to explicitly deny that Mark and Matthew write a story or a narrative at all. And this gets its most clear articulation in his later work, The Place of the Gospels, which does have an English translation, in which he focuses on the actual compositional act of the evangelists and its place within sort of the history of literary traditions. And his claim is that the best way to understand the evangelist is as a mere collector of folk traditions. So he is not like a Greco-Roman biographer collecting stories about someone and putting that into a life, constructing a narrative or a life out of different stories. He is much closer to someone like the collector of the Apophthegmata Patrum, which is a collection of stories about desert fathers, or German folk tales, which have, you know, individual stories that are not connected or don't form an overarching narrative. In particular, Mark and Matthew, most of the form critics give some leeway for Luke. That said, Schmidt clarifies that not even Luke deserves to be called literary in these cases. He too is 
under the control of the oral tradition. And Boltman gives this famous articulation that Luke, that not even Luke is master of the traditions. He too is primarily a collector. And transitioning a little bit here into the reception and influence, this view of the Gospels is essential for the practice of form criticism. Because if you were going to take a narrative unit and go and try to reconstruct how it originated and how it transmitted, the contents of that narrative has to be discrete. Um, so you can pick out exactly what the narrative unit is that originated, um, indistinct from the sort of story around it. And it has to be undigested by the evangelist. You have to, to, to practice Boltman's method, you have to be able to look at a feature in the story as Mark presents it and say, ah, this is clearly a mark of Hellenization. This is something that gets a layer that gets added on here. If the evangelist is digesting these stories, that is, you know, reworking them in light of their literary vision for the life of Jesus and their theological views, you can't practice form criticism in the same way. And I think in the development of redaction criticism and our coming to understand the way Matthew and Luke reshape the tradition of Mark, and even the way Mark, the study of Vreda, even the way Mark reshapes his oral traditions, um, is part of the story of the demise of form criticism. Interesting for the reception of Schmidt is a series of articles that were published in, in response to Schmidt um, on this idea of the summary statements in the Gospel of Mark. The first was by C.H. Dodd in 1932 in an Expository Times article. He rejected Schmidt's conclusions about these summary statements and argued that the Markan chronology did indeed provide a basis for the reconstruction of the life in Jesus. Dodd argued that when you take these summary passages and you place them together, they formed a continuous narrative that for Dodd provided an outline of the Galilean ministry. What the evangelist did was take this continuous narrative and took the other individual units of tradition and placed them into this framework. And where he would do that based on location, based on theme, based uh, on different ideas. And when something didn't fit neatly, the evangelist did the best that he could. And so for Dodd, this solves the problem of chronology and also gives him a compromise when things don't fit in to this traditional framework. And so Dodd is able, by doing this, to keep the historical reliability of the, the framework of the tradition while also admitting that not everything is in the correct historical order. In response to this, Dennis Nynum, in 1957, in, in a chapter in the R.H. Lightfoot Fetchdrift, he observed that Dodd's hypothetical historical outline was, in fact, not useful. Nynum argued that if this outline did indeed exist, it was very short and would make the task of placing individual units of tradition within this outline nearly impossible. Nynum also argued that only a few of the individual units of tradition provided any sort of internal evidence of where they should be placed into this outline. And thus, half of the account of Jesus' ministry would be arranged topically, which would undermine any argument for the historicity of the chronology of those events. So what Nynum did was he showed that Dodd's hypothesis was inadequate and Nynum restated the traditional form-critical view advanced by Schmidt. Now, Brandon may not agree with me here, but I think there hasn't been a lot of really good work criticizing Schmidt's view of the Gospels head-on. E.P. Sanders' Tendencies of the Synoptic Tradition is, of course, the 
game-changing critique of the methods of Debelius, Boltman, and later form critics that really killed the form critical method for reconstructing transmission history of narrative units. But it doesn't really address Schmidt's primary claim. And other outspoken critics of the form critics, people like Richard Bauckham, actually sort of assumed Schmidt's model for discrete, individually circulating units. Just gives a different explanation for how they get between the disciples and the evangelists. That said, there are, of course, a few important exceptions. Uh, Norman Perrin has a great article on the evangelist as author in which he argues that we can understand the narrative framework of the Gospels as a literary construction. And David Hall dedicates an entire book to a point-by-point critique of Schmidt's study. And while I certainly can't endorse the sort of historical credulity, um, he does do a remarkably good analysis how Schmidt's arguments work and many of the inconsistencies and contradictions within Schmidt's own approach. And I think really just calls Schmidt out for a thoroughgoing question begging. That is, Schmidt often assumes his conclusion and when there is evidence that confronts him that contradicts his conclusion, he conjecturally emends or reconstructs a otherwise unevidenced oral tradition for which there is no direct textual evidence. No, I, I think that David Hall has done a, a great service in uh, engaging with Schmidt at length in an English publication, and he provides a great examples of the way that Schmidt argues, and he points out, like Ian just mentioned, his underlying assumptions, though like Ian... I am not ready to go quite as far as David Hall. The other book I really want to mention that I think addresses Schmidt in an important way is Helen Bond's recent monograph, The First Biography of Jesus, which is a study of the genre of Mark as biography. And the thing that I think is really, really relevant for our understanding of the Gospel of Mark and the phenomena that Schmidt is using to justify his reconstruction of oral tradition is that it is conventional in Greco-Roman biography to collect a bunch of independent stories and link them together thematically or topically instead of chronologically. So, for instance, Lucian's biography of his teacher, Demonax, is a series of more or less independent apophthegms, uh, stories about his teacher, linked together without much transition or chronological importance, followed by an extended conclusion that is narrative. And why this matters is because if Bond is right, that this is just how you write biography, then the structure of Mark's gospel doesn't actually tell us anything about the nature of oral tradition beforehand, because Lucian knew demon acts, and so presumably knew something about the chronological settings of his teacher's life, and nevertheless doesn't tell the story that way, because, if Bond is right, the way you write a biography in the 1st and 2nd century is a bunch of independent stories arranged non-chronologically, followed by a narrative conclusion. And so I think this observation really undermines Schmidt's project. Helen Bond also, in relation to that, has a great article in New Testament Studies on the Passion Narrative that undermines Schmidt's argument for the uniqueness of the Passion Narrative as the only coherent piece of tradition, where she argues that, in fact, the Passion Narrative is just what you would expect at the end of a biography. 
And so it more firmly places the Gospel of Mark within the genre of biography and further undermines several of Schmidt's important arguments. In summary, the problems with Schmidt's work aside, this book is really important because, as we've said, I think several times, it is one of the found. It provides the foundational working assumptions so that form criticism can happen. That Schmidt argues at length that in the oral tradition, these individual units of tradition circulated independently and without connection to one another, and this allows for Boltmann, Debelius, and later form critics to do their work of identifying the genre or the form of these individual units of tradition and also identify their place in the life setting of the early Christians. And Schmidt's arguments are the basis for form criticism, and they also later become in part the basis for a lot of the early redaction critics' work as well as they are looking to see how the, the ways that the evangelists tied these individual units together reveals more about their theology and things rather than more about the history uh, of the life of Jesus. So Schmidt's work uh, has been influential in a number of ways, whether stated or unstated, in the development of methods of looking at the Gospels and trying to get behind the Gospels to oral tradition. Thank you so much, Brandon, for joining us today. Thank you, Ian. Hopefully we can get you back someday to talk about whatever your next project is, or maybe more about the form critics, if that's what you're interested in. Absolutely.